0: Hello, and welcome to the Buying and Selling Businesses show. I'm Phil Jepson. Today I've got a special guest joining me. I want to introduce you to Guy Bartlett. Guy, tell us a bit about you and how you got into buying businesses.
1: Hi, Phil. Um, Well, I guess my story goes back to uh, the 1990s. So up until then, I'd had a, a fairly traditional job and career, you know, climbed the, the, the corporate ladder so to speak, uh, albeit uh, largely in, in smaller businesses and back then my uh, career was in uh, marketing industry so advertising agencies, direct marketing and so on and become a, a specialist in, in DM uh, and uh, I joined a firm in the mid 90s ostensibly to grow that and we did that quite quickly uh we ended up with a holding company two separate uh, businesses one a, a digital business and one a kind of traditional dm agency um with a lot of high profile um, blue chip clients along the way but we did that classic thing of kind of rapid growth and then uh, and then to some extent plateauing so the challenge in the early 2000s was how could we continue that growth pattern and you know, when organic is difficult so if you're I was group MD, and I'm kind of looking after clients and people, and all of the different components of trying to um, grow a, a sense of essentially an owner-managed business. And I got fascinated with the idea of could we expand by acquiring our supply chain. So a number of the suppliers in our in our uh, industry had similar customers. Um, and then the challenge was how could we do that without any real cash to to fall back on. So early 2000s, I started to research ways in which we as a small business, an owner-managed business, might be able to step into the arena of acquisitions in order to continue that growth rate, really. So that was the challenge that we set ourselves, and it wasn't an easy process, but managed to look at what, if you like, big players would do, looked at some of the American principles of what are called leverage buyouts. Uh, and looked at funding options in the UK at the time back then and figured out a way that I thought might work Uh, and that's really kind of got me to the point of the theory. What happened next was was quite interesting. Uh, had a classic shareholder fallout, uh, left the company, uh, fractured my spine, lay in hospital going okay what's the universe telling me Um, and decided to just kind of try and put my theory to the test. Uh, And lo and behold, after almost a year of kind of stumbling around, you know, making offers, making lots of mistakes, eventually uh, two companies said, yeah, okay, we'll sell to you. At Which point it was like deep breath, swallow hard, (laughs) which you've been through, okay? Uh, This this stuff's just got real. And and early 2006, we did our our first two deals really. And I kind of got that that cycle rolling.
0: Just going back a bit, before you actually started buying businesses, you've, had, you've clearly you've seen the concept. Um, was it completely self-taught, or were there people out there that could mentor you, were there people out there that you could learn from? Well,
1: when I left the army, I, I uh, came back to the northwest. Um, uh, I'd grown, grown up in the northwest uh, of England before joining the, the military, uh, so I kind of naturally gravitated back there rather than, than London. Um, and moved to Greater Manchester. Um, and at the time, as a kid growing up, I guess, I'd always been fascinated by some of the, the you know, the major players like uh, Jimmy Goldsmith back in the day, for example. But one of the guys in my industry at the time, marketing services, uh, is a chap called Sir Martin Sorrell. Uh, and I'd followed uh, what he'd done in developing WPP. Um, I'm a massive uh, admirer and fan of what he achieved at WPP and what he's gone on to do since, since leaving them. But of course, you, you see it from the outside. What you don't see is the kind of detail, I guess, of, of how to do it. So I looked around and I came across an American uh, who taught the process in the UK, um, a chap called Dan Pena worked on Wall Street, and quite a compelling story. Uh, and really just immerse myself in, in Dan's uh, principles mm-hmm. and he's still around today um, but what I found was you could get so far into the process but no one would ever show you how to join the final bits of the dots which is the well okay how do you do the finance bit all the mindset all the principles all the the deal structure and negotiating all of that sort of stuff is relatively straightforward certainly you, know, you can learn that from lots of different sources um, but it's that it's that how do you you know join the dots in the real world in terms of finance really and that was the bit that was pretty much self-taught um, having run a business I, I've become familiar with different types of funding you know bank finance um, borrowing of different shades um, and the thing that became evident was the use of back then a, quite an, um, an unknown product which is essentially um, invoice finance um, but that's, that's focusing on the, the cash flow, the, the financial performance of, of the business and, and often releasing a component of the balance sheet which is overlooked. Um, so it's that blend of balance sheet and cash flow um, that I figured out if we could do that would probably allow us to get into the marketplace and basically that's how we got going.
0: Interesting and, and you've talked about funding and obviously these days there's quite a lot of different funding options out there, mm-hmm. um, but there's a fundamental concern that some people have, particularly people who own businesses who are selling and their advisors. the whole idea about mortgaging the assets of the business you're buying in order to buy the business yeah. now, you look at uh, the big corporate market it's standard it happens all the time mm-hmm. I mean. Great example of that is Manchester United, yeah. The and the closes, way that yeah, that perhaps. was applied. Yeah. Um, I mean, just just talk about that a bit and um, how how you've translated that concept into smaller businesses, and also whether there's been a shift in the way that people regard it. Well, we
1: sat here in uh, July 2020, which has been a quite tumultuous year, really none of us would have seen you know, what what's happened in terms of the coronavirus and the impact on business and the economy. So I think before coronavirus came along, I, I probably would have had a slightly different view of, of the answer to the question. Um, so let's go back to pre-COVID yeah. because that's probably a sensible start point. And for me, I always found it interesting. There's two, I think there's two ends of the spectrum to answer the question. So you're always gonna find a percentage of business owners who have a compelling need to sell um, uh, and the, it's really a binary option for a business owner do I sell or do I close and so you've got to start with basic principles the balance sheet shareholder funds figure is the shutdown value or something less of that um, so what's the flip side if I can sell this business I can I can turn my asset my we call it blood, sweat, and years, into a, into a tangible benefit, really. Uh, but the price for any business is what someone's willing to pay for it. And that's a blend, therefore, of, of um, risk and mitigation. All of those sort of components are going to go through the mind of the buyer uh, and the mind of the seller. Uh, and it's about bringing it again. I remember really early on in, in my experience talking to a guy who ran a, a heating and plumbing business. And he wanted to emigrate to australia so really good strong compelling reason and the deadline to emigrate was was approaching so in terms of motivation and the need to do a deal it you know that was quite strong so we'd gone all the way through the process of evaluating the business looking at the strengths and weaknesses looking at the risk factors he was quite a key part of the business he was second generation so he'd, he'd taken over from his dad you know the business had done really well for him and the family and they were in a position where they could emigrate. But in his head, he was expecting me to come along with a great big pile of money and go, there you go, thanks so much, off your pot to Australia. And when we explained, um, you know, the price was the price, but the deal structure, so there's a difference between the enterprise value and the deal structure, it, he got a bit of a shock. And he was like, well, I thought you'd just give me, you know, top dollar and I could walk away. And I went, but there's so many mitigation factors that we've got to count into that issues that might crop up after you've gone you know if you just want the money and go then there's got to be a discount for that because we've got to factor in risk factors and so a lot of business owners don't understand that or they're not very well advised or or they find that a difficult concept so that's one of the issues to to work through Um, and there's that there's that yin and yang almost as kind of the vendor wants the highest possible price. The seller doesn't necessarily want the lowest price, but it's more about risk mitigation. So when I look at a deal, it's not I want a penny pinch or beat them up over the price. It's much more about, well, there are lots of factors that will, that will you know, you'll uncover, even to some extent that the seller hasn't thought about in the business after they've exited or, or partially exited. And it's, it, it's trying to find that balance, really. And so, on the one hand, you'll get highly motivated vendor who's, who recognises that issue, is willing to sit down and have a, a meaningful conversation and find that common ground. And on the other end of the scale, you'll, you know, you'll find vendors who, I kind of call them in, politely tire kickers, just intrigued with the concept of selling a business and what it might be worth but actually don't have that degree of motivation at that stage to do a deal. And and so it, it's working your way through that process, really. Um, and, of course, the other major factor, we're talking about owner-managed businesses, really, is a marketplace. Most owner-managed businesses find it almost impossible to structure themselves with a view to a sale. So to get the best price for selling any business, you're going to have to... Get it ready. I call it oven ready. You know, you're gonna maximize your profit margins. Well, to do that, you're gonna have to reduce what we call the bobs, you know, the business owner benefits that naturally a business owner is gonna wanna put through their business, that's the whole point of, you know, of owning it in the first place. But they're also gonna maximize the profit margin, which means you're gonna pay a lot of corporation tax. And I don't know any business owner who relishes paying corporation tax Um, you know, we work incredibly hard for our money and and we all have that sense of government tends to waste it for us. So it's a really difficult conversation to go back to your significant other and go, hey, guess what? We're not going to take the holiday to California this year and we're going to cut back on the school fees and we'll get rid of one of the cars and, and that way we'll maximize the value of the business when we sell it because selling a business is a really uncertain process anyway. So for us, you'd think naturally as a business buyer, that improves the opportunity for us and for the seller it weakens their position but in truth it's in my experience is about having a meeting of minds and we try really hard to find people that we get on with you know values based deals really improves and it makes the process more enjoyable and finds the 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 meeting ground in the middle much easier to, to, to get to
0: so we've talked about structuring deals and um, the way that funding can be leveraged on the assets of the business. I just want to talk a bit about price because obviously you don't look in a catalogue to see the price of a business. So when you're looking at the business for the first time, how do you start to get a feel for what the business is worth?
1: Do A quick, a quick look is really simple. Um, you've got to get full accounts. Really you need a spread of ideally at least three years because you need to see patterns in a business and they, and they do jump out to you quite quickly. Ideally, five years would, is best because you get that sense of the, the performance of the business. And, and it's worth noting, I think, as well, Phil, that I, I would ordinarily recommend buying a business that's at least five years old. Um, I would never buy anything younger than that anyway. Um, and i would just quickly dial up back to the reasons behind that. The statistics, as you, as you know, mm-hmm. Uh, for success and failure of business in the UK, quite stark. So 50% of all startups fail, um, 50% of the, the startups that succeed often don't get beyond five years and so on. So what we're trying to do in, a, in acquiring businesses that have that, um, uh, that history of performance is it, it's a bit like a tree or a plant. You know, it starts to develop longer routes. And that root system sustains, um, you know, the, the, the tree and the, and the system above, really. So the longer the business has been trading, the more sustainable. And, and therefore, the easier it is to do an assessment in terms of its value, long-term, short-term. So specifically, what I'll do is look at the most recent accounts, because you've got to work on historic data. And then you want to look at, obviously, management accounts and see if that pattern is being sustained, look at forward order book and so on. But what we're really looking for is is just dissecting the two key components. So on the balance sheet, we're looking for um, a sustainable story. Uh, we're looking at the tangible assets, the current assets, the current liabilities, and any other kind of longer term structures like like debt and so on. And if we can see a consistent pattern of margin being generated between current and uh, assets and liabilities, so debtors, creditors, Um, tangible assets that have some real worth that are not really encumbered by debt, for example. Uh, Then then we've got headroom. We've got what I would call equity. The equity, if you compare it, say, to a house, then the equity sits there in that balance sheet. And then we're looking at P&L and we're looking at how efficient is the business? How well is the business run to generate profit? And you'll always get this approach from advisors and brokers about adjusted EBITDA Uh, Earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, amortization. Most people don't even know what the DAR bit means, but let's not go there. Um, But that profit component, uh, and then going and looking, delving into what is the burn? What what do they spend money on? How much of that is about business owner benefits, which is fine, tick in the box, they're genuine ad backs. And how much of that is about what could you do with the business? How could you make it more efficient, centralized costs and and, on all those sort of good cries, really? Um, depreciation is an interesting one because an operating business is going to record depreciation. It's a real thing, but most brokers have ever come across to try and add it back as if it doesn't exist, but clearly it does. So there's that sort of balancing act to do in terms of the numbers, but that's what we look for. So in terms of value, I guess it's, is equity is there in the business as I would call it. And secondly, what's its profit performance? So we will do, most people are, con, uh, are aware of the multiple. Mm. So two ways to value a business, really. Net asset value is very straightforward balance sheet value. Um, and, and that's a useful start point because that's the shutdown value. As, as we said earlier on, a seller's got two options, close it, sell it, broadly speaking. So if if, if they're going to close it, the best they're going to get is a figure south of that asset value or shareholder funds. So that's always a valid start point, really. Um, and look at that number. But generally speaking, shareholder funds will be less than a multiple, generally. Not always the case. Um, so then we go to the, the, the next option, which is multiple. And multiple is is really the opposite of historic performance. It's kind of, well, okay, historically, the business has performed at an average of, say, 10% profit before tax. Do we think that that average performance is, is capable of being repeated after the sale? And then you've got to take into account, will the clients leave? Will they stay? Will the staff stay? All those kind of imponderables, which are the soft components. And then you look at, say, the forward order book. You know, how strong are the contracts? What's the relationship with the customers like? How forecastable is the income stream? And all of that has to underpin that multiple, the magic number, essentially. And then you'll have a conversation with a vendor and they go, well, I want a million quid. And then you've got to to have the thing, well, okay, tell me how you got there, you know? And often it's just sounds like a nice number. Uh, and, And you've got to try to find a way to get back to the middle ground, as I call it. You know, it's like, well, yeah, we'd all like a million quid, but how's that sustainable? And so a real simple metric is how many years of predictable profit is it going to take to get back to the number that I'm going to pay? So even if I'm going to pay 50% on the day and the rest deferred over two, three, four years, you know, is that realistic? Um, And I've had quite a number of conversations with vendors where we ended up saying, look, on your numbers, it's going to take me eight years to pay that money back. Would you wait that long? And almost invariably, they go, no. <laughs> and then you can have a meaningful conversation because yeah. it's as simple as that. You know, if, if the business generates half a million quid profit a year, yeah. and they want 10 times, that's a long time. And most people wouldn't wait that long, in truth. So why would you wait that long? You know, that's really the nature of the conversation. And that's why I say it comes back to a values-based conversation. If you're dealing with someone who is completely unrealistic um, and that's not your style, it's going to be a short conversation and value, you know, just it's almost immaterial. But if someone's genuine and they recognize, you know, what you're talking about, many business owners for companies they've had for 10, 15, 20, 30 years even, in truth i have had a huge amount of value out of the business and they've worked for it. That's that's great. But the house is paid off, the whole holiday home's paid off, the kids have gone through university, they've provided Bank of Mum and Dad for their deposits. They've done all of that and the business has given that. So in those cases, really the sales should be the icing on the cake. They should have filled their pension fund by now. They should be in a good position and this is about, here's a an elegant exit that's good for you. You're going to take the business on and create the legacy and they're going to get a justifiable, unfair value, but they get to walk away. Yeah. Uh, and all too often, time and time again, you'll find vendors get caught up in an unrealistic value, badly advised by a broker or a, uh, an accountant or whoever, and they, they get really rigid around price, and it defeats the object. It's like, take a big step back. What are we trying to achieve here? You know, oh, well, I'll just hang on to it then. Okay, but you just get older. You still haven't achieved the aim. You've not sold the business. You've still got the responsibility for the company. Even if you've got a management team running, it's still ultimately your responsibility. Health and safety, who knows? All kinds of things. And then COVID comes along. Yeah. And i oh, OK, now I've got a problem. I've met multiple business owners who, you know, we've had conversations with and now they're going, oh, I'm going to have to get back in my bunker and I'm going to wait another year or two years And what if you get cancer? What if a significant other dies? What what happens if you have a heart attack, you know, and you haven't offloaded that business? It's almost impossible then for you to get anywhere remotely close to the value that you had when you started. And it's that element of honesty and frankness Mm -hmm. that we always try to to get to without it seeming like it's an angle, you know? That's the, the challenge around valuation for me. Um, uh, uh, I just I just think it's useful to pick up on the idea of the mortgage uh, on the previous question, just to go back to that, because when it comes to the deal structure, it's an interesting proposition. So vast majority of people would buy a house with a mortgage. Yeah. They're not going to come along for, I don't know what the average price, what's the average price of a house in the UK now, 400, 450? It is an orderly age, yeah. An elderly age, <laughs> <edge>, okay. Um, <laughs> I don't know, 350. Yes, it's probably yeah. in the 350s. 300 yeah. yeah. so, so, yeah. so 350. vast majority of people don't have 350 grand sat in a bank account yeah. looking for a house to buy. Yeah. So most people are going to go and get a, a mortgage. They're going to borrow money. And what's the mortgage secured on? Yeah. It's secured on the asset. The asset it's secured on. Yeah. So why would it be any different for a business buyer to secure funding on the asset, i.e., the target company? So I always find that a bit of a a curious one that either advisors, brokers do this a lot. It's like proof of funds. You know, we need to see you have got 5 million quid sat in the bank account to buy this company. That at that point, I know nothing about, i have done no evaluation on, no idea whether the vendor's worth talking to, yet they want proof of funds that you have got 5 million quid sat in the bank burning a hole. Any money sat in a bank account is going backwards. So why would anyone do that? A professional buyer would not have tons of money sat around in a bank account looking for what, in truth, could be a very iffy deal. So the concept of, of mortgaging a deal, for me, is entirely valid, but it's an odd one sometimes to get past. Yeah. And, uh, yeah but
0: that's quite a good way to, to put it, actually. Yeah. it is quite a good way to yeah. put
1: it.